production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Jamie Graber, best known as Organically Jamie, is a coach, mind shifter and teacher. To be with Jamie is to train your gaze to see the wonderful, to attend to and focus on what you love, even in the midst of difficult realities. Jamie says if you're not aware of what's stopping you, then you'll never move beyond it. In this insightful conversation, Jamie opens up about her eating disorder in her youth and the darkness surrounding it, rebuilding her life and her greatest manifestation, her son. I can't just stay in the stars. If I stay in the stars, then nothing will happen on earth. If I'm so earthly, then I forget that there's magic. And so what I need to be able to do is ground into the earth so that I can reach the stars and I can have them come together. You're a miracle. And the fact that you're here makes you worthy of all of it. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Jamie Graber has helped her clients shift their limiting beliefs with new, healthy, empowering thought patterns. In its essence, this conversation is about growth, contentment and love. And it's about a celebration of the human spirit in all its glory. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. There is so much to walk away from and put immediately into practice. Jamie, you are a wonderful mindset coach and your work has always interested me. That's why I have you on the podcast today. Can you tell us a bit about your upbringing and what led you to this work? So I grew up in New York to uh, two very loving parents with an older brother. And I would say that I couldn't be more different than anyone in my family. And my mom will always joke around that I came out of the womb wanting to understand it all. And we grew up in a, a nice family in a nice town. And things were very surface level, but like that never was enough for me. I always wanted to understand more. And I think that I wouldn't say I had the easiest childhood, just in the sense that I don't, I didn't totally fit in. You know, A, I was a redhead. I still am a redhead, right? And um, it was very hard, I think, for me, especially then, because, and maybe it's a social media change, but back then, like, being a redhead or being different in any way, Mm. and maybe it's just my lens, but felt really different. And so for me, I had lots of experiences where I was like called out or made fun of or, or all this attention was put on me um, because I was a redhead. So I always felt different. Why do we call out people who are different? I mean, someone that has red hair, as an adult, you think like, how wonderful, God, I'm so envious. They're so lucky because they are different. I think that it goes back to, in general, mm. why are we ever mean to someone else 
is because we're having our own internal battle, right? Of whatever that is. And so as kids, right, you know, we're just running through so much anxiety and so much, not anxiety, so much insecurity is really, I mean, maybe anxiety too, but insecurity that if there's someone who's different, then they can easily be where we can move the attention so someone doesn't see how I don't fit in. Yeah. And so I I think that that's kind of, and I think that we do that as adults too. I think that, you know, that's the... That's probably why we do it, <laughs> you know? And I think that maybe kids learn it from, you know, watching their adults do it, yes. you know, on some level. And then, so then when I went to um, school, I was in college and I was like a business major. And then I was taking philosophy courses and I fell in love with the understanding of our reality and how we can create it mm-hmm. and all these different thoughts about that. And so I wound up switching majors. And then that kind of like took me on a whole kind of discovery. My father wasn't happy, but um, I did it anyway. And then after that, I had um, gotten my senior year, I got um, a very disordered relationship with food, shall we say. And I got really sick with that. And, you know, I think that actually the the obsession with understanding myself and understanding how my mind works and all of that and understanding us and how we all work together is a big part of where the eating disorder came from um, because I didn't really understand. My biggest thing back then was, and I, and I don't think we all have the answer to it exactly, but it's like, am I me and the version of me that I think I am or is the version of you, that was the version that you have of me, the mm. real version of me, right? And it, is your version objective? And then I can go on and be like, well, no, it's not objective because it's still through your lens. So it's through your projection, Mm. right? And then it becomes this whole different thing. And I think it was really hard for me to understand then what was real. And at a young age, I think that was just hard for me to hold. And so the eating um, became a little bit of a big problem. I shouldn't minimize it. It was a big problem. And so after school, I kind of lost all my friends and I lost all that. And I went back to the city, um, New York City. And, you know, I had always grown up in a very typical suburban affluent area. And it was like, you go, you go, you graduate high school, you go to college, you move back into the city, you go to the Hamptons, you meet your husband and you have two yeah. kids and you have, and that's exactly as it goes. My story could have been further from that, you know? And so when I had always grown up thinking that you're supposed to have this moment where you go into the city and after college is the best time of your life. And my brother had that, you know, my brother was a, a huge example of what you're supposed to be. Um, I had lost everything. I had lost everything. And so I was in my city that I was always told supposed to be amazing, but I didn't have any friends. And so I had this kind of rediscovery of me. And so I was doing jobs that like I wouldn't have thought of doing. And one of them was doing event planning in New York, but we had all these events in LA and Arizona, and it was like really, really high end, incredible events. And so I would go, we'd have to travel for them and we'd go to California for a bunch of them. And then on one of them, I wound up, Going and I was in Santa Monica before tech got there. So it was like a very different version. And it was back in 2000 or 1999 or 2000, right around there. And I remember I walked out of my hotel and I, and I saw a high rise building and I walked in and I was like, 
do you have short-term leases here? And there's a doorman, and which is not a beach thing in you know Santa Monica normally. And they're like, yeah, we have six-month ones. I'm like, okay. And I remember calling my dad in the leasing office and being like, I'm about to sign the six-month lease. And, and my father's not spiritual at all, but he's loving and amazing. And um, he's like, what do you mean you're about to sign a lease? You own your apartment in the city. And I'm like, I can just tell you that my soul feels at home. Mm. And he was silent and he doesn't believe in souls or anything like that. And he was like, well, who am I to argue with your soul? Mm. Sign the lease. The irony is, is I thought this was the most supportive, beautiful moment. Years later, we had this conversation and I was talking about how beautiful it was. He's like, Jamie, I said yes, because I thought you'd go out there for six months and come running back. He's like, he's like, I actually was not in this beautiful, supportive space, but I didn't want to fight you because if I fought you, I thought you'd stay longer. And I wound up staying for quite a long time. And I wound up in Venice um, very quickly. And it was just, I landed in like my first yoga teacher training in 2001 or something. And I just really went deep into my spiritual practice and who I was. I first found Kundalini then. Mm. And it was just this magical time of discovering who I actually was before the world told me I was supposed to be something else. And then I wound up finding raw food, which was an incredibly healing part of my journey. And I worked in that industry a bunch in LA. And then I had this intuitive hit, like I should come home to spend time with my family because my brother had a little girl that I didn't really know. And so I came back home and it was supposed to be six weeks I landed in New York and I called my boss in LA and I'm like, I don't, I don't think I'm coming back. I'm pretty sure I'm staying. And then signed a six week lease. Then it turned into finding the next space. And then I was like, I don't know. And then within three months of being home, I wound up meeting my husband, who's now my husband, but you know, and that's a whole nother thing. So then I opened up a raw food restaurant and it was this raw vegan restaurant and it was in the East Village and then the West Village. And it was it wasn't just a restaurant. It was a community. And we would do A Course in Miracles on Mondays. It was called Miracle Mondays. It was really all about me trying to, um, I wanted people to understand that like raw, healthy food didn't have to be hippie. So it was hip and it was cool, but it also had this beautiful spiritual aspect. All I wanted was to bring people together Mm. in something that made them feel better. That's You know, in something that made them. And I've, I was really lucky. You know, I got written up in the Times. I didn't have PR. I got all these great things, but Mm. I didn't want to run a restaurant. I wanted a community. You spoke about earlier something which really stuck out to me. And you mentioned on your journey to owning Ginger Snaps that there was a point where you found yourself with no friends and it was quite lonely. And that's a big deal because I'm sure a lot of people have found that themselves in that space at times. And I wonder... How did you move through that? Because that can be definitely isolating, but quite frightening for a lot of people. And you've picked yourself up in such a way and you have such a beautiful community around you, not only your good friends, but also just the community that you have obviously grown from who you are and the work that you do. So I'd find it inspiring to know how, how you kind of came through that. The way it happened for me is my best friend, who I thought was my best friend at the time. She had a different experience, but I was, so I'm five, seven and a half and I was 85 pounds. I was sick. I wasn't doing well. And it was not, I didn't have an awareness of it, right? Because I was so in it at the time. And we were leaving school 
She dropped me off. We drove back home and she, and this was the girl who I couldn't stand without leaning on her. We were inseparable. And it was like, okay, we'll go back next week. It was in Penn We went to Penn State. So it was like, we'll go back next week and we'll grab the rest of our stuff. I didn't hear from her again for 10 years. What? Right. So what wound up happening was, I'm so old. Clarity had just started yeah. actually. That's when this was. And I was calling and calling and calling and calling and calling and calling and she wasn't answering and she wasn't answering and she wasn't answering. And finally my mom got a hold of her mom and her mom said, Jamie's just not healthy for her right now. And she used me as a scapegoat and I wasn't healthy for her. Both were true, right? Both were true at the time. And she said to my mom, maybe they can pick up this friendship five years from now, but we don't Mm -hmm. think it's healthy for them to know each other. And then that turned into everyone from my school piecing out. Um, And so there, here I was. And so like, I remember my parents were scared. I was on my parents' couch crying, not being able to move. I had no serotonin at the time, right? Because I was, my thing was I didn't eat. Um, and so it was a kind of a, um, a rock bottom moment when, cause I'm very close with my, I'm very close with both my parents, but my father especially. And I saw him cry and his mm. best friend said to me that your father is watching you die and he doesn't know what to do. And in that moment, I was like, get help, got to get help. And so I actually wound up going on Prozac for six months, right? Saved my life. Saved my life. I don't know what would have happened if that intervention didn't happen. It was able to get me to a space where like I could view food differently. I can actually eat because I I would go, I would work out eight hours a day and not eat, right? And so so, it's so sad when I think back about how much pain I was in at that time. And it was able sort of to get my mood levels to a point where I understood what was real and what wasn't, right? And this idea that when I was that thin, like I thought I was too fat to leave the house, Mm -hmm. my mind was not working right. And so it got my mind in a better space. And then I actually wound up going to California a bunch with work. And there was something about... So a lot of what I teach has to do with the subconscious mind. And I think for me, a lot of what was happening is, is that part of why my friendships, even in my college days and definitely in my high school days, never felt like home. Yeah. My friends now are home. I don't have to have any act on. I don't have to do mm. anything. I am me and we might fight, but I'm still going to be me, right? I can be vulnerable and sad and I'm always going to be me and strong and all the different versions of me. And I think back then... I was in a role that I was playing because that's what I was supposed to do. Yeah. Right. That's what society told me. That's it. That's how I fit in. And so I was constantly kind of contorting myself into something that I wasn't. And so the way subconscious mind works, right? It's always associating. And so every time I was in all these situations, even when I was in New York, because I didn't have an awareness of what was happening with me, I just kept on trying to be something I wasn't because I associated how I was supposed to be with those areas around me. So every time I was in New York, I was the girl who had to have all the labels and like didn't smile and was kind of bitchy Mm -hmm. and all these different things as these protective layers of me trying to be this person I wasn't. And then when I went to LA, because I don't think in New York, I ever got happy yet. 
when I said my soul felt at home, it was because my soul wasn't at home in New York, even mm. though it was my home. And then when I went to LA, I knew no one, not, not a soul, right? And the, except for my soul. Yeah. Right. And so what happened for me is that I didn't have any of the association anymore. Mm. I got off the plane and it was like, I have nothing to understand like how I fit in, right? The subconscious mind is always going to show me how I fit in, but here I am. And it's like, since I have nothing to sort of reflect back to, my soul's going to tell me how yeah. I fit in. It's like clean and slate. And what I do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a clean slate. Yeah. And so I remember my whole thing was, is that I was going to say yes to anyone who hung out. I would literally, the Harry Krishnas on the beach, the waiters, the every single person. I remember this one time at Sidewalk Cafe in Venice, I was sitting and like the waiter, I heard him mouthing to himself. I'm going to sing and I shouldn't sing, but he was singing the song, I want you. And I stand up and go to show me the way we became best friends, right? It was just, I was in that space where I was like, I am so interested in humans and who they are. Yeah. And people who grew up completely different from me because how I grew up, everyone was the same. Mm. Everyone was the same. There was no variation. And so I think that because I was curious about people in general and minds and how everyone works, it naturally kind of led that. And like my mom, my mom's not spiritual, but she is. Yeah. She's Jewish and, and she takes it seriously, but not in a religious way. She takes it in the way of... Um, she loves all of the, this kind of the spiritual sides yeah. of it, you know, and the part of like the um, kind of the superstitions and stuff like that yeah. as well. And so I grew up with Sounds that. like my mother. Sounds <laughs> exactly like my mother. Not spiritual, but Jewish yeah. and likes all the holidays and don't st- yeah. sit on the corner of the table because there's something about maybe not getting married. Or I don't know what it is. <laughs> so, yeah, don't put the bag on the <laughs> yeah. floor. Don't, all the things, right? Yeah. I think that, so there was a level of that. And then I had this aunt or I have this aunt who was a total hippie, like worked in like a rock and roll store, you know, like she was all of that. And she would give me these worry dolls when I was younger and I would put them under my pillow and I'd tell them all my worries. And she definitely had me listen to like Janice Ian. And so she really brought out this spiritual side of me. And I think that there was always kind of laying in there. And where I grew up, yeah. there was no spiritual side going on. Now I'm sure a lot of them are very spiritual because it's a different world, but back then they weren't. And so, and then I wound up in raw food, right? Which is incredibly spiritual in the people who are around, it can be. And then I was you know, doing all the yoga trainings and I think I just got deeper and deeper into kind of understanding we are a collection of the people that we spend our time with. Yeah. What would it look like if more people really kind of understood that and understood how important it was to surround yourself in a conversation that takes you in the direction you want to go. And so that's kind of where Ginger Snaps happened. And then ironically, I wound up opening up a restaurant and my husband's a chef, right? And so not for my restaurant, he's like a meat It's a whole nother storyline, but he's the complete antithesis of me, especially when it comes to food stuff and spirituality. He's like science. Prove it to me. I want it logical. Right. He loves all my crystals, but he thinks because they're rocks. Yeah. Right. Not because they're crystals. (laughs) Um, But I kind of wound up with a restaurant by accident. But I needed that restaurant because that's where I created the community. And the thing that I loved about Ginger Snaps was having people come in there Mm -hmm. and I was always there. I was always there and I was basically coaching people all the time. And I wound up 
coaching people through there. And then when I finally, I had worked with a coach myself and she, and I was just so unhappy with ginger snaps. I really didn't love having a restaurant. It's, it's really hard and not the kind of hard I want. Yeah. Right. And not the kind of thing I want to do. And so, and again, like I was really lucky. I manifested beautiful things. The New York Times wrote a love letter about me. All the right people wow. came, all the right people loved it, but it didn't matter, you know? And so I worked with a coach and who was, what if ginger snaps isn't it? And I was like, oh, how dare you? How dare you? And then we hung up. And then all night I'm like, what if ginger snaps wasn't it? What if ginger snaps isn't it? And I spoke to my husband. At this point, I was meditating a lot, which is a big belief to me that is so important for all of us. And I said to my husband the next morning, I don't think I want to do this anymore. Mm. And he was so beautiful and so supportive. He just looks at me and he's like, so don't. And in that moment, I was like, I I think I'm done. And I remember going to my landlord the next day and being like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I need to break my lease. And he was like, "Um, Jamie, if you can, no one could do it. If you can do it, if anyone could do it, you could do it. I believe in you so heartily. He's like, I love, and he wasn't even this loving man, but he loved me. And he was like, a flash of rent in half. Rent rent has been cut. And I'm like, that is so kind and so sweet. And you just made it so clear to me how much I know that I don't want to do this because I'm not even tempted not even tempted, even though you just slashed my rent. And so I remember speaking to my coach like six weeks later and I'm like, I'm closing, I'm closed ginger snaps. And she's like, you're going to have tests. I'm like, no, I'm not. Cause I already gave back the keys. I'm like, I'm literally done. (laughs) And she's like, oh my God. And so we wound up, I closed it rather, rather quickly. And then working privately with people in regards Mm to mindset and spirituality and meditation and manifesting and creating. And that just kind of happened like very, I always say this all the time. I work hard, but it's effortless. Yeah. Well, yes. It's a big thing because at the moment, what I'm trying to teach a lot of people in my own discoveries is exactly what you're saying. Praying, meditating, doing all those practices is wonderful. And I find them so unbelievably important, but there has to be action involved. And I remember a person I adore said to me a while ago, people always ask me if I can help them in a certain area and do all this. And I, and I do enjoy it, but it's not exactly where I want to go. And he said, if you keep doing that, you're going to get more people who are going to be emailing you and inquiring and this and that. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, that makes sense. But then also it made sense in the, if I want my just normal manifestations to occur in my life, I can actually do them. I can't just talk about them and I can't just wish them to be. And then in my life, I started closing doors on things like similar to you with your uh, restaurant and then suddenly put action in the other area, bang, doors start opening left, right and centre. That never happened when I was wishing for it in those years before. So I think that is so pertinent for everyone to know. I think that that, so one of the things that I teach all the time is meditation is non-negotiable for everyone. Yes. First of all, when we talked about the beginning with understanding who I am and, and what's being projected onto me and what I actually feel, a meditation practice does that for you. What it winds up doing is it's like a shower for your mind. And so what that looks like is every day I get to wash off and I have to be, get to be in process and understanding 
what's theirs and what's mine. You know, I speak to a lot of people. I coach a lot, right? So what that looks like is a lot of people's stuff and stories and worries and stuff are happening in my space all the time, right? So if I'm not cleaning and clearing and showering, I'm going to take all that on as myself, right? People talk about being an empath. We're all empaths. I would hope we're all empaths. The difference is, is that you get into trouble with it when you actually think that other people's pains has to be yours. And that's when you stop remembering that theirs and mine. And so I have clients who can be going through hard stuff, but I don't, I'm so compassionate. I'm there. I feel it because the way our mind works in order to associate, in order to help someone, you have to sort of put yourself in their position to understand how it would feel. That's how we're empaths. We kind of put ourselves in your pain so that we can understand it so that we can be present for you with it. That's kind of how our mind works. The difference is, is that you can keep on holding it Or you can be present for that in that moment and then you can clear it off and remember what's mine and what's theirs and what's mine and what's theirs. And so um, I think that that's a really important part of a meditation practice. And then the other part is understanding that we are, from my understanding and from everything I've experienced in my life and what I teach to people is that we are creating our lives with the support of some higher force, whether that is God, universe, spirit, source, whatever it is that you want to call it, there's something, right? We all came from the stars. We all came from something, right? And I think that what meditation does, especially when you're doing something like Kundalini meditation, which is a lot of what I work with, but any kind of spiritual aspect, if you're connecting with your spirituality every day, what happens is, is that you have this presence of I'm in prayer, right? And when I, when I meditate, I think it's a prayer. It's Mm. together. It's the same thing to me, right? And part of what that is, is me having this desire, having this core belief, having this core want and understanding I wouldn't want it if it wasn't to be mine in some form. And I'm going to sit in meditation and I'm going to allow source, infinity, whatever it is to come through me to show me what earthly steps I need to take to make it happen. Because I can't just stay in the stars. Mm. If I stay in the stars, then nothing will happen on earth. If I'm so earthly, then I forget that there's magic. And so what I need to be able to do is ground into the earth so that I can reach the stars and I can have them come together. But I can't reach it without going down, right? And so... Your practice, like a meditation practice that has a beautiful spiritual component to it, has you in that daily remembrance of the fact that you're a miracle. And and the fact that you're here makes you worthy of all of it. Because I have a, you know, I have a son and we had to go through a lot to get him on the earth. There was a lot of earthly steps that we had to take. And in that, I was able to have this beautiful lesson and this beautiful understanding of, wow, so much has to go right for us to be on this planet, which means we're an effing miracle. Yeah. A hundred percent. We take having kids for granted. That's the first thing. And I think once a baby is in your stomach and you go, how the, this is a true miracle. But you see like the millions of people surrounding you. Yeah. You don't even think about it. They're just people, friends, this and that. But when the baby is in your stomach, they're kicking and you go, this is a true miracle. And then they come out and you think, they look a bit like me or a bit like my partner. Yeah. And you go, that is a true miracle. And even now I look at my two kids and I look at my son's nose and I think, that nose is perfect. How 
Is that possible? <laughs> you All know, of it. it's such a yes. fun, it's a funny thing. I would take it further than that. And I would say when I look at my son, and he literally is my husband squashed down. Like he is a replica of my it's it's wild. But when I look at him, I am in awe of the miracle that he is. Yeah. And then it becomes this beautiful mirror for myself to be like, and so are you. Mm. Oh, I love that. Right? And I yeah. think that once you understand that you're a miracle and you really get that because really we all are miracles. Then when I walk through life, even people who are being challenging to me, even people who are pushing my buttons or any of that stuff, because I'm in the awareness of the fact that we all come from the same thing, we all come from source, whatever that is, that I know I'm a miracle and therefore I can see them through that light as well. And so even if they're being challenging to me, my heart can be open towards them still being a miracle and still being a human and not demonizing even my biggest enemy because I remember that they're in their own experience. You and then it rem- and then you felt feel that way about yes, you too. Absolutely, you can just you keep on having this balance of remembering like we're both miracles. I can have all of my core desires. I can create everything that I want, and so can they. And I allow space for all of it to happen. And they can have it, and I can have it. And it doesn't stop me from having it if they have it. Well, that is a very good point. But something that you just mentioned, which I think is so pertinent, is the fact that we are all miracles, but we. We take each other for granted a lot of the time. And, you know, my dad a couple of weeks ago, and like you, I'm close to him. He just had a back operation. He's never had an operation before. I, my whole family was freaking out. And it was the first time where I thought, oh my God, what if I lose my dad? What if he, something happens in the operation, I lose him. And I remember I was getting a massage during the time that he was having the operation and I was nearly crying face down, just in my mind constructing the worst possible scenario, knowing much better than to do that, but you can't help it. But I thought, why has it taken that my dad has to have a back operation for me to go, oh my God, he's a miracle and I love him and what would I do without him? It shouldn't be like that. And to what you're yeah. saying, we have these relationships with these people that it is special. It's always special. We're special. And not to take any of those things yeah. for granted ever because you don't want to be on someone's deathbed and wishing you had spent more time with them yeah. or even vice versa. I mean, I speak to a lot of palliative care workers and they talk about the five regrets of the dying Bronnie Ware or BJ Miller spoke about the thing that people regret, not spending time with their family or just those simple things that we can all do. Since I started really getting into this work and stuff, I look at my mom, my mom and I, I love her dearly, but she also, I joke around, I'm like, I have a group course that I do, this like, group coaching that I do. And I always say, oh, I have so much material because of that woman. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I love her dearly, but I have a lot of material from her. But I look at her and I have this, this moment for her and I recognize not only are you my mother, you're someone's daughter, yeah. and you're someone's friend, and you're someone's wife, and you have your own story of how you grew up. A lot of the things that she and I, you know, go at it with because like, she grew up completely different than me, right? And so like, the lens through which she sees life is, is very different than mine. And so instead of getting mad or frustrated or triggered by it, I fall deeply and compassionately 
in love mm. with this sweet young girl who went through the story that I could never have imagined, yeah. right? And so I think that that then has me when I'm with her in the presence of all of her. Wow. Instead of just that moment that I'm with her and her whole her. And I think that that's kind of what we should look to do or not should because I'm not, not a great word, but I think that that's how we can have less regret yes. because we were have this full presence with the people who yeah. mean something to us. That's really interesting because I find a lot of people come to me and they are in that situation where a parent triggers them, a friend triggers them. There's always people in our life that trigger us. And one of the best lessons I've learned is we can't change other people. We can't force them to change, to be like us. How do you deal with that when people feel that I need to change my partner or my cousin because I can't get along with them otherwise? I, I always believe that whenever there's conflict, most likely it's you, right? Yeah. Most likely it's me and all the things that are happening. And while some people don't like that you think that way, it's the most empowering thing that you can feel because it means that I can change it. And one of them might be that I change my perspective on mm. it. I can just also understand, like, again, using my mother as a beautiful teachable moment, so back to the weight stuff. So the thing with weight, uh, there's some history with my mom with that, right? My mom was like beautiful and like was a pageant person growing up. And now she's, she's overweight, shall we say. And growing up, she put a lot of pressure on me with the mm. weight thing. And so there were times, even after my eating disorder, where she still would say to me, oh, do you remember how good you looked in clothing back then? Really? And, and it'll be this, you know, you take a back for it, right? And instead of attacking her, one of the things that I've recognized for her is that when she grew up, she didn't have anything, right? And so she used what she looked like to get to meals yeah. because she'd go on dates, right? And that's how she would eat dinner sometimes, was just saying yes to someone mm. so they would feed her. And so for her, her superpower and her survival was based on the physical. Mm. And so when I understand that, when she's saying that to me, I recognize it's it. She doesn't mean it how I'm taking it, yeah. right? Because to me, my value is my mind, is my wit, my heart, right? It has nothing to do with the physical, right? And so instead of being mad at her like I used to be, yeah. how could you be talking about my weight and all that? I recognize because to her, she just wants me to be in my superpower. Yeah. And her superpower is that, and that's just all she knows. And from that space, I can't get mad or triggered. I can only feel compassionate and love. I love that. And from that lens, I can say to her, mom, I love you. I'm not available for that conversation. Yeah. Right? So it doesn't mean I get to like have her keep telling me yeah. how great I looked at that part. I can still have the boundary, but I say it from a space that's very much, I love you. Yeah. I love you so much, but like, I can't be in this conversation. That's really wise because a lot of people would hold on to that and resent their mom for the rest of their life because they were speaking like that. So I think that that is amazing advice. But something you spoke about before, which is really interesting, was the fact that we can all have things and it doesn't mean that there'll be less for someone else. And mm. I, I, I love talking about that because I feel that in society today and especially due to social media and all the other different ways that we see people and perceive them in a certain way, we feel this real lack mentality 
oh, if Jamie has something, that means that I won't be able to get it or someone, Jamie's coaching someone, which means someone else can't coach someone or whatever it is. Can yeah. you explain those kind of even universal laws on how there is always abundance for all of us and we don't need to be watching our neighbour and feeling that we might have less because they have what we want? I, I think that the idea for that is just to, what I do because I'm a human being. So, of course, I have those moments too. And how I work with it is I get to my breath. Yeah. I get to my breath and I, I literally get curious with the thought with whatever fearful thought it is. Okay, she booked that. So it means I'm not going to get it, let's say, right? Or that client, whatever, let's say, went to her. I take a breath and I'm like, is that true? Is that true? Right? Because she got this, does that mean I can't get it? Mm. When you really sit with that, you're like, well, no, that's not true. Okay, so then what about, what is it that she has that I want? Mm. What is a version of that for me? and then you can get clear with that. It's like, okay, what small little step can I take to move towards that? That feels good, right? And so I think that in those moments, it's you use them as, one of my teachers used to call them, and I think it's actually a psychological thing, it's like an expander. So instead you see the people who have what you have of the understanding that if they have it, then it's possible for me. Yeah. If someone else have it, then I can have it, yeah. right? And then going through that lens of also understanding that if I couldn't have it, I wouldn't be upset that they do, mm. right? And so the example of that I use often is when I see Taylor Swift singing on the stage, while what she's doing is fantastic and amazing, I have no jealousy or envy towards that because I can't sing. So there's nothing in me that thinks that she is taking my spot. Yes. Right? But if there's someone who's doing something that I want, right, then I recognize, oh, that's telling me that I actually believe I can have it. That's why I'm upset by it. That's why I have an emotional response to it. So it's like, okay, the other part of that means is that I'm probably not taking steps towards it. So, okay, let me sit in that space. If I believed it was possible for me to have that too, what would I do right now? Mm. I teach about future self all the time, right? The future self version of me has the thing, right? And so if I believe, and I very much, and that's a whole another long conversation, but I believe that future self and present self are the same, right? As long as I connect, the problem that most of us have is that we make decisions from our subconscious, right? We make decisions, choices, and actions based on past stuff that hasn't possibly worked out, right? So we make them with the lens that I'm not going to have the thing, right? But if I can be connected to my future self and I can make decisions from the version of me that has it, right? So when I'm triggered that she has this, let me sit and let me connect to the version of me that has it. Okay. So what does she do right now? God, feel it be grateful for all that I have, and then take one small step that feels good Mm. in my body towards bringing that closer to me. Because most of the time when we're angry or any of those things, we're mad at ourselves because we know that we're not taking the steps to do it. You know, I talk about the, you know, vision board stuff, you know, how a lot of people, a lot of people will go off on the vision board. And here's my thing about a vision board. 
a vision board can be really powerful if you understand how it works mm. and if you connect it to future self. So for example, if you make this beautiful vision board, right? Let's say you have yourself on a stage, if that's one of the desires that you have. And so you have you on a stage on your vision board. If I just sit on my couch and do nothing about it, I'm, that's not going to get me closer to the stage. Yeah. But if every time I walk by, I sit and I connect with the version of me who's on a stage and I'm like, I can feel it. I'm on that stage. Okay, so if I'm on that stage, what would I do right now? If I'm that version of me that gets to be on this big stage, what would I do right now, mm. right? And I allow my actions from right now to be led by that. So every time I pass that vision board, I'm reminded, oh, of the version of me that's on the stage. Yes. Or, in, or married or whatever it is of the thing that you're trying to bring into yourself or whatever corporate job you want to do, whatever it is. And so it's because of the way the subconscious mind works, it, it triggers behaviors, right? It sets off patterns and like kind of automatic yes. responses. And so a vision board is a really beautiful thing to work with if you're going to use it in the way that reminds you of the version of you that has the thing. And then your automatic reaction is to actually act from the space of you that has the thing. Not from the space of you that doesn't. Going on that, obviously, like we're talking a bit about manifestation now, and that's so interesting and a lot of people constantly ask me about it. Well, I would love to hear, once you get the thing, how do you hold on to it? Because a lot of the time our subconscious mind goes, oh my God, I got the thing. I got the thing I was manifesting. This is amazing. And then we do some self-sabotage. I think the difference is, is that for me when we're talking about manifesting and stuff, it actually never relates to the actual thing that you're trying to get, Yeah. right? So what happens is, is that if I'm connected to the version of me that has it, I feel it right now. Yeah. So I don't have to wait so that when I actually get the thing, it, it feels familiar mm. because I've already been having it. Yes. So I don't have to freak out and I don't have to blow it up because I always knew it was coming, right? And so therefore... What happens is, is that when there's a disconnect with the version of me that manifests to the present me, right? So then when I get the thing, it feels foreign. And like the way we work subconsciously, when something feels foreign, it feels fearful and it feels scary. And so that's why we usually blow it up. Yeah. But if we're familiar with it, because we spend all this time with the version of us that already has it, as we journey, first of all, the journey becomes fabulous, yeah. right? Because I'm in it. I'm not in a state of lack during any of it. I have it all the time. Because whatever it is we're trying to manifest is actually connected to how we want to feel. It's mm. not connected to the thing, right? The, the million dollars in the bank doesn't do anything for yes. me, right? Except for make me feel a certain way. Right. Or, or, or yes, it gets you on the yacht. But being on the yacht, the physicalness of being on the yacht <laughs> does nothing. Yes. That's such an interesting concept. Feeling. Feeling. Yeah. But I can feel that now. Mm. I can feel it now. I don't have to wait for the yacht. And I still get to go on the yacht. Yeah. Right? But the difference is, is that my journey to get on, the, my thing is yachts. Just, I, I don't know if you, <laughs> this is like my thing I always talk about. So if my feeling is... Um, if my desire, right, is to be on the yacht and I wouldn't have it unless it was available to me, I wouldn't have that core desire and I can be feeling it right now, then my whole vibe as I go and my journey as I go to get on that yacht feels good. It doesn't happen when I get on the yacht. It's the whole time, right? And then guess what? Once I get on the yacht, this is like the other controversial thing out there. 
then I want more. Mm. Yes, absolutely. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay because it's evolving. And yeah. the idea that you, you, you're constantly wanting more, absolutely. Of course, you're always wanting more because you're constantly evolving and growing and you're, and you're pulling in those things and then you want more things. The issue becomes if I'm not happy till, Right. Then it means that I'm always putting something in front of my happiness. And then if I keep on putting it further away, then I'm never happy because the thing, the actual completion of the mission is what creates my happiness. And I'm saying, no, the journey creates my happiness. Then I get the thing. And then I keep on going with this beautiful journey. I keep on going and expanding more and more and more and more. You mentioned that you had difficulties when having your son. Mm. Knowing everything that you do, how did you get through that period? Because I know a lot of people go through that. And I mean, did you just do manifesting 101? I mean, it's challenging when you're actually put in that circumstance. I will tell you that our IVF journey was the most magical, romantic, beautiful, loving two so years of my life. And my husband would agree with that. And so we refused. So I was very much, I'm, I know that I can manifest, right? And I know that I was going to be a mama because I know I wouldn't have had the core desire, Right. I wasn't sure exactly what it would look like. I'm someone who had never been on the pill, never been on hormones, never, I was very organic my whole life. Yeah. Right. And so I never in a million years thought I would have to take the steps I did. There's a lot of steps I took that took a lot of rounds of IVF. And then we eventually wound up with a donor and then my beautiful son, right? So when I was first manifesting, was I saying like, oh, I hope I get to carry someone else's egg. And that's how we do this after like eight rounds and all this money um, and all these shots and like all these operations. Yes, that's, no, that's not how I wanted. But what I wanted was to be a mama. Yeah. And what I understood is that I would do whatever it takes to be a mama. And I was committed to that. And because I was committed to that, I knew it shall be, however that looked. So I didn't try to create or manifest. You can never do it like this. You have to be able to do it like this. So I wasn't sure what it was going to look like. So when we started the whole IVF process, while it's so stressful for so many people, for us, like... It just, it felt beautiful. We made it very rituals. I think that rituals are some of the most important things you can do. And so like we did, we played mantra. My husband's not into it, but like he let me do it. We played <laughs> mantra. Every sh- every time we did a shot, there was mantra going, there was candles lit. Beautiful. All the different appointments we had to go to, he came to all of them and we went on coffee dates before. And so instead of thinking of it like, oh my God, this was this crazy time and all the stress and all these apartments, it was all these stolen moments that we never would have had, Yeah. right? We got to go on these coffee dates at seven in the morning, six in the morning. When would we have ever done that before? Never. But we had this beautiful experience that was so sitting in the understanding of how much we loved each other and how much we wanted to create this thing together and how we came together so beautifully and how beautifully he held me. And it just was literally the most romantic experience of my life. And so in our fertility journey, like, and some people say like, oh, that must have been terrible. No, only if you make it. Yeah. 
only if you make it, we can make anything into a beautiful moment. Mm. We really, really can. And now understanding that here I, here we are now, my, my son is 16 months old and he is magical. He is, he is literally the perfect combination of my husband and myself. And it's amazing to understand now, like we would never have done it any other way. If someone came to me and said, you didn't have to use the donor, we actually would figure out a way that you could do it. No, I wouldn't change it. And I mean that with every cell of my being, like he is so my son, you know, and my pregnancy was so beautiful. It actually happened, you know, during COVID, we found out the week before lockdown that I was pregnant. And so- the timing was perfect. My husband cooked every single meal was like from the farmer's market, my entire mm. pregnancy, homemade. It was this really magical experience. And so when we look back now, it makes sense why it all worked out as it did. Same thing if you want to go back to the story I told you about my college when it was like the darkest time yes. of my life. That brought tears to my eyes. Like that sounded very shocking. It, it, and let alone because you're actually going through an eating disorder then all your friends just leave you when you probably need them the most. It, and then finding out all these stories and all this betrayal and all this stuff that was going on behind my back. And it was like, whoa, yeah. you know, it was. But in that, I will tell you, I was on the medication, I think it was like six months. And then I took myself off because my eating got better. Yeah. And so my, I was making the serotonin at that point. And so I was able to kind of see life for what it was. And I will tell you that I... It was at the beginning of my spiritual practice because it's right when I moved to um, LA and stuff like that. And so I think that that really helped me through. And then in hindsight, probably within a year of that, I realized, or probably once I was in California for like two weeks of being with my own soul, I was like, oh, that had to happen or else Mm -hmm. I never would have left New York. I would still be that person who's obsessed with labels and all this bullshit and being this person who I, sorry for the curse, but being this person who I wasn't, right? And so I needed that to happen. And ironically, she contacted me like 10 years later. And I was back in the city and we've actually hung out a few times at that point. And I remember looking at her and being like, your life is not awesome. And it's not a judgment. It's not a judgment. That was the biggest blessing of anything that could have happened to me because I would have done the same thing. I would be in the same space. And it just was, wow. And then from everything, after that happened, and I think after I was in California for a while and I saw that, any of the bad shit that happened to me afterwards, which still bad stuff happened to me, I was super, super clear there will be something beautiful that happens from this. And it became such a beautiful, uh, you know, a knowing because I experienced it. Yeah, there's that beautiful saying, we have to live life looking forward, but we can only understand it looking back. And our teachers become those dark moments. I mean, I had the Mm -hmm. same thing when I worked in breakfast radio and the hours were horrific. And my, my spiritual teacher said to me, that was your biggest blessing. And it Mm -hmm. reminds me of your friend. And I think I wouldn't want to change life at all because when you understand things from a spiritual perspective, every moment of your life has gotten you to where you are now and you wouldn't be there otherwise. There was an interview and I saw like this partial clip of it and I forgot who it was, but it was someone interviewing Lady Gaga. And, you know, she's gone through a lot of trauma and a lot of, you know, difficult stories. And someone said to her, what would you tell your younger self to do differently or something like that? And she's like, I wouldn't tell them anything because 
I'm me because of exactly how it yeah. went. And, and that's I the abuse and all the stuff she went through. Yeah. 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 And she's like, and I love me and I couldn't be me without yeah. all of that history. And so it's, it's when, we, when we really understand that we are just a collection of all the things that have ever happened to us and like our reaction to them. And then we get to create whatever we want from them. You know, mm. two people can have the same thing happen to them. And go two totally different ways with it. Yes. Right? And one of the things I think is so important about mindset and about, you know, your daily practices and rituals and all that kind of stuff is that you will have more power to allow the circumstances to never take you out of the knowing and the trust mm-hmm. that you're a miracle. Right? And if I know these are just sort of momentary, they're moments. They're moments. Yeah. And this moment does not mean that I... I'm not a miracle. Mm. And this moment doesn't mean that it doesn't work out. And this moment doesn't mean that I won't be happy again. It just means in this moment, which I'm going to allow myself to feel, it feels like hell. In this moment, I feel sad. In this moment, I feel I'm in struggle. You're allowed to be in that. I, I had a flip out this weekend with my husband about something. And it was like, it's something big that we're talking about and dealing with. I've had this moment where I was like on the Lower East Side, totally having a tantrum. I was able to just sit in my breath for a minute and I felt it. I'm like, this is just a moment. Mm. We're going through construction hell, basically, right? It's a lot of construction hell and it's a lot of money and a lot of things are happening and you're just like, ah, it's never ending. <laughs> and then I looked at him and I was like, it is ending. It's just a moment. Yeah. And from that really dark moment I had on the Lower East Side, Now, I think when you and I first started this call, I can see the light at the end of this construction. I can see the light. I needed to sort of like have that moment of sadness and just remind myself that, oh, this is a moment. Because often our sadness and our, our darkness and all those spins that happen, it's because we're forgetting that it's just a moment. Well, that's it. I think it's going to last forever. Yeah. Once we recognize it's just a moment, then we actually can feel it. Mm. Be sad and be like, okay, like I'm really freaking sad. Great. As long as I'm sad because of this moment. Yes. I don't, I'm not going to allow myself to be sad because this means 18 things down the road. Yeah. Right. All I'm sad for is this This moment moment right now. And if I can contain it to that, then I can feel it and allow it not to mean anything more than this moment sucks. It's true. It's so true. I mean, the sun will always rise. And that's what I always think. Those dark nights... The, the sun will always rise again. It always does. And mm-hmm. you, you spoke about rituals, which I know is a big part of your practice. And I, I'm sure you have a lot of them, but I'd love to know the ones that have really impacted you the most. I mean, the one thing would be playing mantra and meditation and, and prayer. Yeah, I love prayer. Right? I think that my like my, my ritual with prayer is, is that I... And whenever I meditate, and I meditate a lot every day, I'll do it throughout the day, or sometimes I'll sit for a longer session. And in the end of it, my biggest ritual, I think, for everything is like, I will always end it in, I'll have this three-minute song that I put on. And the first half of it, I'm in complete gratitude. And I literally just sit with all, everything I can be grateful for, everything I can find to be grateful for. And in that energy of gratitude, I then I'm in prayer for all the things I want to pull through, mm-hmm. right? And all the things I want to come to me. I do that throughout the day. 
you know, and my biggest ritual is anything I can do to connect myself with my future, yeah. right? That I know is present right now. And it's like, you know, I, I have my crystals and I do little moon things with my crystals. And I, um, what else do I do? I do little rituals with, with Porter and like, you know, certain things I say to him in the way that I say it. And I have these like moments, but most of it, I would say my biggest and most important ritual would be having at least three moments a day in this gratitude prayer circle. And, that. and then anytime I'm doing anything is that I play mantra during that. Yes. During that moment. So like going back to the fertility thing, when we were doing the thing, it was like, okay, let's feel into the idea that I am mama and you are papa mm. uh, or daddy, I should say. And, um, and let's have mantra playing to sort of bring that, yes. you know, kind of thing. Jamie, what's the best advice that you have ever been given? Don't take life so seriously. Mm. Right? Because again, when we take it too seriously, that's kind of when we we make things mean more than they do. Absolutely. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? My rage and anger do not help. Mm. Yes. I'm still learning that one. (laughs) It's a never-ending learning experience life. What is a life of greatness to you? A life that's led by love. Yeah, and love for myself and everyone. (laughs) Jamie, thank you for all the wisdom that you shared today. You are a very, very special teacher. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.